This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're lucky to have Carol Schultz. She's the CEO of Vertical Elevation. She is a sought-after executive recruiter and advisor who works with individual executives and their teams. Carol offers a boutique talent solution that is a unique and customized talent strategy process. As an advisor, she is in demand by executives looking to build better organizations, improve their leadership and communication skills, and advance their careers. Using her expertise as a recruitment process optimization strategist, she's able to improve the number of performers in organizations, substantially increasing company revenue. Carol also serves as an advisor to Innovation Pavilion, where she provides advice, counsel, and guidance to technology founders, specifically relating to hiring and building their teams, to their culture, and to their leadership. We are excited to welcome Carol to the podcast. Thanks, well, good, Bob. Good, good to be here. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Carol, tell us a little bit about your business and the clients you serve. Well, uh, Vertical Elevation, the genesis of that was in 2009. I've been in the search industry for 26 years. And over the years, I really looked at what was not effective within search. A lot of people like to look at what works and duplicate that, but it's easier and better and more effective to look at what doesn't work. So Vertical Elevation was launched in 2009, and I serve primarily high-tech clients, both startups and mid-sized companies, sometimes large companies. Awesome. So, you know, I, I think about for, for the audience that's listening, uh, folks have a preconceived notion, perhaps, of what executive search may mm -hmm. mean. And for the, the person that may not be familiar with executive search and Take us a little bit through the process of what that looks like. Well, you know, when you say executive search, most people automatically think only executives. And people should use someone like me, a retained recruiter, anytime they have an important hire to fill. I've been hired by startups who need software engineers. Most people think, why would you hire somebody like, I've had people, why would somebody hire you to do that? Well, because it's important hire. I mean, with high-tech startups, very critical. Um, on up to VP and CXO level. We talked a little bit before the show, says I'm apt to go down a rabbit hole mm -hmm. every now and again. That's all right. You know, and, and I'm thinking about, um, so you've got a high-tech startup. Mm -hmm. Take us through that process, you know, so like a case study and what the company needed, how specific do they need mm -hmm. to be thinking? Mm -hmm. And then once you have that kind of information, what are your steps? What do you do? Right. So companies tend to have an idea of what they need, whether it's a startup or a larger company. It's far more critical in a startup because every mistake you make could be the end of your company. Very costly. So I sit down, regardless of the size of the company, I sit down and do a kickoff meeting with them and each of the stakeholders that I meet with on the particular search gets prior to that gets a document with a list of maybe 40 or 50 questions to be prepared for as we talk. And in all of those questions, some are geared around the company, some are geared around competitors, some are geared around um, the actual job, most of them are. And all the answers to that allow me then to write a position description. One of the most common things you see when things are done internally in a company is you know, a little paragraph about who we are and then a litany of bullet points. 
That doesn't give someone a reason because especially if you want to hire somebody who's not looking for a job and all my clients want to hire people who are not looking for a job, they're a lot harder to capture, to, re to reel in. So it's imperative that that position description really, really gets at the meat of who is this company? What is this position about? And you know, why would I potentially want to work there? Now that does not sit in place of the work that I do with someone. But once I initially contact a candidate and they're interested in talking to me, after that first conversation, they get a position description, sometimes before the conversation. And so you have the folks that are listening and they have a preconceived notion about recruiting or mm -hmm. what I call the executive search. Mm -hmm. And they're going, well, I have a very specific um, position that I need help with. Mm -hmm. and there's a difference between somebody that may be very niche specific or somebody that may be general in nature. Mm -hmm. um, why don't we jump into that a little bit and talk about the distinction between the two and the benefit to the client? Yeah, that's a really great question, Bob. Uh, when I started in my career for probably the first 15 years, I was a specialist and I placed people within sales organizations. So individual contributors, first, second, third, like managers, so on and so forth. And Later on in my career, and then, of course, when I launched Vertical Elevation eight years ago, I became a generalist. And everyone has, you know, the person who's hiring you will have a preconceived notion of, well, I think I should hire a generalist. I have to hire a CFO. They're going to know everyone already. Well, people tend to want to take the path of least resistance. So they will think, well, gosh, how hard should I really be sourcing to find new blood for this client? And the reality is there are marvelous people that a client may not think of looking at for this position. And I usually throw in at least one of those to every client. And sometimes they'll say, I had a CEO say to me recently on a search I did for a chief of staff. He said, well, you know, I have to tell you, this is after he interviewed the person. I have to tell you, Carol, I was really kind of wondering why you had me interview this person. But then I talked to him and I could understand. So a specialist and this is, I'm just making a generalization, will tend to give you people they already know. They, of course, will go out and find new people. They should be going out to find new people. But a generalist has to always go out and find new blood. So I'm able to take a fresh approach mm -hmm. on looking at something in a way as a third party without any emotional attachment or preconceived notions. This chief of staff search was a perfect example of that. And the CEO said to me, well, how many of these have you done? I said, I've never done one before. Most people haven't. Chiefs of staff are a fairly new job title. And see, I, and I think it's extremely common coming from military background. Mm -hmm. Chief of staff, there is one in every division. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, and, and he just coordinates all mm -hmm. the various staff levels. Mm -hmm. You know, and as we're sitting here and I think about the nature of the job for mm -hmm. the CEO and the founders of the company, and it may be that in the, in the startup world, it may be that the founder has gotten to the point where he says, I can't be the CEO anymore. I've reached beyond my skill sets and I want to have somebody that I can find or I need a particular skill set. Mm -hmm. So can you walk us through like a case study without obviously divulging who you worked with, mm -hmm. kind of the task that they ask you to do, the process of finding the person, and then mm -hmm. the subsequent outcome for the company? Well, we'll go back to this chief of staff search because it's the most recent one I just completed. And it was a challenge for many reasons. I mean, I, we did the kickoff meeting 
four days before Christmas, the CFO who initially reached out to me, who I've worked with in the past, had brought me in. And he had also told me that uh, for three months, they had let a consulting firm who'd been doing some transitional work for them. They said, sure, we can find you someone. Well, 90 days later, there was not a single person. So you know, my comment was, well, if you want something done, right. Do you just hope it happens? Hope is not an effective strategy. Or do you hire someone to do that project? So three months later, he reached out to me. By the time they were able to get me out to the West Coast, it was four days before, before Christmas, <laughs> and they shut down for 10 days. So you know, this, is, this is a great challenge. The search took far longer than it might have had, had he reached out to me 90 days or even 60 days sooner. And um, everybody was on vacation except for me. I was busy taking my notes from nine hours worth of meetings with eight different people and putting it into the first draft of the position description, which I then sent to the CEO who happened to be sick. So it took him a while to get back to me on that. And then we went through a second draft. And between the second and third draft, they decided that instead of looking for this level of person, we needed to look for this level of person. For you folks that can't see, one was a lower level position, the next one is a higher level position. Right, somebody with more experience. Yes. Okay. And um, that, that, of course, caused me to have to go back to the drawing board in some areas. Can I interrupt you just sure, for a second? Was that realization based on the profiling and questionnaire that you did with that company? Well, I think part of it was. Part of it was also due to the consulting firm that had been in there at that time since March that year, March of last year. So they had been in there for close to nine months already. And they, between the work I did and between the work they had already done, we decided you know, for somebody to be the chief of staff to a CEO that founded this company. And if you look around, there are not many founders who are still CEOs from 1988 to 2017. Mm -hmm. he's, he's very rare, an extraordinary person, and a really humble guy. And between looking at that, and it's a $300 million company, and where the transition they had just been through of replacing two of his five members of his executive team, we thought, you know what, this is a big challenge. We need somebody with more experience. And so... You, you did the profile, you got to go through the holidays and, right. and, and life. Life kind of gets in the way. Right. And so you were on the other side and you had the description after the mm -hmm. interviews with the six or eight folks that you right. spoke the to. Right, the whole executive committee, that's five people. The CEO, the CEO's ad, you know, executive assistant, CEO's executive coach who flew in from and so, another area. You're, so you're, you're now tasked with going out and finding talent. Mm -hmm. Walk us through that process. Well, that process starts with, of course, the position description and me understanding their needs. And it's not just about what they want. It's about me asking hard questions to, is this reasonable given who you are as a company? Mm -hmm. Some people will say, gosh, well, I want this. And I will say, well, given who you are, the size of your company, how long you've been around, do you think that person wants to come work for you? So it's all those things. Right. And once that's determined, I start sourcing. I also have a sourcer that I employ mm -hmm. to help me. And we start looking for people. And that first list, usually in the neighborhood of 100, 100 possibilities, could be more, could be a little less, depends on the search, 
and, and how hard it is to find people. And once that list is there, I start calling people and introducing myself, mostly leaving voicemails, <laughs> mm -hmm. and engaging them and having a conversation with me. And you know, there's a way to reach out to people, whether you're talking about a software engineer or a CEO, how to engage them in wanting to talk to you because most people think, oh, recruiter, mm -hmm. all they wanna do is pull me out of my job. Well, I'm really more interested in getting to know someone because a name and a public profile doesn't tell me anything about could this person even be a fit. And even if they are, how do I know we want them? And how do I know what that person's even interested in if they're even open to hearing about an opportunity? So that process takes time because mm -hmm. busy people do not always have an hour for a first call, an hour for a second call, maybe another hour for a third call. And so in this particular circumstance, so folks can mm -hmm. kind of frame the amount of time, how long did it take you to narrow your list down? Narrow my list down from uh, the to, to five people that I wanted to present. Yeah. Um, let's see. So the kickoff meeting was right before Christmas, probably three months okay. in this case. And partly it was because the nature of where I was looking for possible candidates okay. from the large consulting firms. Mm -hmm. They're very busy. They travel. My CEO travels. His team travels. So it took longer because of that issue. Mm -hmm. So the higher, the higher level positions tend to take longer because of those circumstances. Sure. There's just, there's just, you know, circums, you can, you can either, we all have circumstances in life and you can either let your circumstances manage you or you can manage your circumstances. I prefer the latter. And so we're now, we've gone through right. the, the early phase. Mm -hmm. We've gone through the narrowing the list phase. Mm -hmm. And then you have these five potential mm -hmm. candidates. Walk us through that process. Well, I've talked to many, many people by then. Mm -hmm. And part of it is we, we talked about, well, the people could come from consulting firms or they could come from industry and before industry, the, the vertical market that they're in. And, or we could go to industry and that maybe they worked for a consulting firm before that. And then there was that, that sort of red herring I threw in there, as I had mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. So to give a CEO a potpourri of candidates that are all great quality, is what's the most important thing to me. Mm -hmm. So that they can now look and, and judge people. We also built, I built, and the CEO approved it, of course, a competency model. So that when each person interviews, if a company wants, to, wants a competency model, they don't always want it because they don't always want to use it, um, the competency model then allows the interviewer to make sure they're asking the questions that are important to the position. Mm -hmm as well as each of the competencies that we've now come up with are ranked low, medium, or high importance to successfully do the job. And then we rank them one to five. Process. One at lowest, five at the highest. Process driven. Well, the reason for doing that is because hiring is very emotional. I'm not emotionally attached. That's one of the benefits of hiring someone like me. Yes, I'm committed to completing the project, but I'm not emotionally attached to it. And companies are incredibly emotionally attached to their hires. These people are going to be living, you know, living together every day mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes. So that competency model helps through the interview process and it allows us to then take, let's say, four people interview. We can now look at those things objectively. Well, gosh, I wonder why Bob rated this guy a two 
in this competency, but John ranked him a five. So now we have an opportunity to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So is Bob unsure? Did he ask, maybe not ask the right question? Or does John not understand that competency? Mm -hmm. So it helps us fine tune. And so, so you fine tune, you do, you rank the candidates. Right. Then they narrow the field. Right. So we went from five to three. And then we're, we're now at some decision tree that mm -hmm. they say we want to make an offer to what, one of them or to? Well, we narrowed it from five to two, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the two finalists dropped out mm -hmm. um, due to her having had a baby a year and a half earlier mm -hmm. and not being ready to go back to work full time. Sure. And so you had the final candidate. So we had, we brought in the other third candidate who was also a great candidate. He just, yeah. in some areas, didn't rank as, as highly as the other two did. The other two women actually happened to be. Yeah. And these, these, these women were both exceptional at change management, which these, this company needed mm -hmm. and still does need given their history. So we got it narrowed down to two, and then those two people came back in and met with the CEO again, mm -hmm. and also had a conversation with his executive coach. And you know, then CEO and I had some conversations around that, and we narrowed it down to one who just started the first of this month, first so, of July, so, or the 5th of July, actually. So December 21st to July 5th. So when, when you think, you know, for me, so, you know, to kind of close that loop. Mm -hmm. So the person's in the job. Mm -hmm. What other information do you get post that event that helps you inform your process? You know, are, are they doing good? Were they successful? Did the company benefit? Right. After they've been placed and after they start working. Well, I, of course, speak to my candidates, usually within the first week or few days. I will also reach out to whoever the hiring manager was, in this case, the CEO. And you know, how's it going? Any questions? But I have a, I have a timeline after someone starts 30 days, 90 days, six months, just to ping them, make sure everything's going fine. Mm -hmm. Are there any problems that you need my help with? Is everything going along swimmingly? You know, we, we talked a little bit before kind of shifting gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, there are, I guess, larger companies, in the recruiting space, and mm -hmm. you're a boutique firm. Right. If you can, compare and contrast those two. Yeah, that's another great question. So the large, let's look at the large firms first, the large, the large retained firms. They're very well known. They're very well marketed. People pretty much know who they are. And executives often think, oh, we need to go right to the big firms. Big name, they're going to be able to do a great job. Okay. Then there's there are boutiques like me who have become a boutique firm. Many people have left the larger firms and gone to a boutique or started a boutique because either they don't want to work in a giant company with a lot of red tape and a lot of infrastructure, and they want more control over how they run their business and how they run their searches. For the folks that are fired up and want to take and reach out to you and explore further, <laughs> how do they find you? Well, there's a few ways they can find me. They right. can find me on LinkedIn, Carol Schultz. I live uh, in the Denver metro area. S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. Righto. Okay. 
And, or they can uh, find me by email, carol at verticalelevation.com. Or they may reach out to me by phone, which I always love, 303-805-7635. Perfect. Now, sorry to interrupt. I worked with a, a, a Series A startup out of Boston. I think it was in 2013 or maybe 2014. And um, this was probably in 2014 when this conversation happened. The CEO had hired a, a staffing firm, contract recruiting really, and a contract recruiter is somebody that just works for you hourly. They work for a different firm, so you're really being 1099 by the organization you're with. They hired a contract recruiting firm to do, I think it was probably software engineers, companies headquartered in Boston. So you know, anytime you're in a very in-demand city, especially for software engineers at this point, they're really hard to find. And pretty much all software engineers hate all recruiters because they are spammed constantly. So anyway, uh, I happened to be talking to the CEO a couple weeks after that about something I was working on for him. And I said, by the way, how is that contractor, you know, how's that firm working out for you? He says, oh, we fired him after two weeks. I said, really, why is that? He says, well, the Rainmaker comes in and sells us on the project and how great they are in, but the Rainmaker doesn't do the job. They put somebody else on the job. So in a boutique firm, I mean, I'm not gonna make a generalization one way or the other, but typically in a boutique firm, you shouldn't have that problem because it's smaller, it's more intimate, and typically the people who, who uh, sell you the project also work on the project. In my case, I do just about everything. I've chosen not to build a larger company because, as Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. You have control. I'm accountable, I'm, I have control, but I'm accountable yeah. for everything. So I don't have to have a client say, well, Carol, so-and-so is just not coming up with the right candidates. And then I got to go and we've wasted more time. So I'm very choosy about the clients I take on. And I don't take on a lot of companies each year. I only take on as much as I can do. You know, I, I think that successfully. You know, with the the way that the world is working, you know, mm -hmm. the bricks and mortar versus mm -hmm. virtual space. Yeah. You know, and at the end of the day, you're looking for the value of the product produced. Right. You know, it, it, we touched on it a little bit, I think, on how recruiters are compensated mm -hmm. for their work. Right. And there are basically two broad types of Correct. recruiters. Mm -hmm. Let's dig into that a little bit. Okay. So you've got contingent and retained. And it's the same thing as if you were hired to hire an attorney. There are contingent attorneys who don't get make any money till they close the case and hopefully win it. And then there's retained attorneys who take your money up front before they lift a finger. So the vast majority of recruiters out there, like I don't actually know the numbers, but probably in the high 90s percent, are contingent. So they're like realtors also. Mm -hmm. They don't get paid until they sell a house. So what the, the problem, and, and, and your listeners will, will probably appreciate that because most of your listeners have probably bought a house at least once and used a realtor. How many houses do you see before you buy a house? Many, maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe the realtor's asking you the right questions about what you're looking for, maybe they're not. So... Typically, there's a lot of slinging spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks in contingent search because the company hasn't made a commitment to you. So they may have 
four recruiters working on it or five or six. And first person in the door with the right candidate makes the money. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you a story when we're done here in a minute, but, and then retained, of course, if you want them to work, you need to pay them. And that's usually a three pay process. All retained firms do it differently. Uh, some put a component of contingency on it, you know, a third up front, a third after X number of days. And when the person starts, then you get billed for the third. Some, I know some boutique firms who do it that way. As far as the actual compensation, of course, the large firms are typically charging exponentially more. Now, I don't ever talk about, in a meeting with someone, I don't ever talk about how much I charge until they ask me. And that's after sometimes many conversations before we even ever get to that. Because it doesn't matter what I charge unless they see value in it. So they have to see value in what I do or any other search professional. So the large firms have to charge considerably more because they've got big fancy offices. They have partners who need to make exponentially more money than other people. They may have six people. They have to be paid out of every search. They've got sourcers they employ. They've got research, you know, researchers. They've got the people who call the candidates, which I do myself. It's so, labor intense. It's so laborious. They just, so they just have a lot of overhead. They have a huge amount of overhead. You know, I don't have that. To think about the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm I'm a potential client, and mm -hmm. and I go I've got to hire some folks. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't I just go out and and do the various online search platforms, you know, go, I can take and go through LinkedIn and mm -hmm. say software engineer Colorado and mm -hmm. send a blast out. Mm -hmm. Compare and contrast that effort and thought process as opposed to going through a professional. Right. So there are companies who think, oh, I'm not going to hire someone. It's too expensive. Well, great. Well, Mr. CEO, do you come to work every day without being paid? <laughs> you're, you're, you're the CEO because you're valuable. So many companies, and this has happened since the internet started. You know, when I started in the business, it was all, all brick and mortar. I mean, there were, there were fax machines, but there was no internet when I started in the business. So there was more value on recruiters, really knowing how to find people. And that is a talent that only the old timers like me know how to do because we came into the business before it was easy to find people with the internet. Then the internet came along and companies, as you said, the online places like Hot Jobs or um, Monster, those companies came along and made a fortune. But all those really were, were, instead of putting classifieds in the newspaper, now they put classifieds online and they could get more in. You didn't have one inch you had to pay for. You had a lot more ability to write more. So when that started to happen, Companies started to make a transition to thinking, oh, we can hire somebody to look through. We'll post on one of these sites and find somebody. It's easy. They'll all be applying. Well, guess who applies for jobs, Bob? People that need a job. Right. People looking for work. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's an ineffective strategy for some companies. Depends on what your business model is. You may be in a very high volume, high turnover B2C business and think, well, no matter what we do, we're not going to be able to retain people. I don't happen to agree with that. Zappos was a great example of creating a work environment for lower wage people 
and they love to stay. Mm -hmm. Tony Shea did a fabulous job of doing this. So it depends on what your business model is. And um, then LinkedIn came along and I think it was 2003 or 2004. It's been so long, it's amazing to see the growth. And people thought, oh, this is an awesome business network. I was, I think, right around the first half million members that joined LinkedIn. I mean, it's up to something, what, 200 million worldwide? And then people said, oh, how LinkedIn, LinkedIn's gonna kill the recruiting industry. Well, what, you know, what is LinkedIn when you think about it? It's like the Yellow Pages online. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, really, great, a really great way to look at it. It's just a bunch of profiles online. So, I mean, do the Yellow Pages tell you the quality of someone's work? They don't verify their work either. Well, they don't. And, oh, LinkedIn's gonna kill the recruiting industry. And really all LinkedIn is, is a big giant database. It's, it's a the, big giant database. Without the knowledge of how to use a database effectively, yeah. it's worthless. Business dating service. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As I'm apt to do, I was drifting off thinking of something as you were talking mm -hmm. of something else, I think which is what humans do. Yeah, right. You know, and, and we were talking a few weeks ago about the cost mm -hmm. benefit. Mm -hmm. What is the cost to the company? You know, they may think they save money up front in the recruiting process, mm -hmm. but what if they don't do enough due diligence and place the right person in that job? Oh. Depending on the position, it could literally be in the millions of dollars. So for sales, that can be the case. I mean, let's look at a company. Everybody's trying to sell something. Company wouldn't be in business if they weren't trying to sell something. Who's generating all your revenue? Top sales guy. No. Sales Gal. guys, sales yeah. guys, gals, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Your salespeople generate all, directly generate all the revenue. Indirectly, your software engineers are generating revenue because if they don't build a product that anybody wants to buy, salespeople can't go sell it effectively. So some companies think, you'll talk to a VP sales and they'll think, my people are more important than anybody else in the company. Well, how do you think you guys are gonna do if they don't have the right product to sell? So. Everybody, and you know, the reality may be without a sales organization, you don't generate any revenue. That's a reality, okay? But you need all those other people to make yeah, your company function product, effectively, yeah. right? And if you have a great product right. and nobody knows about it, that doesn't work either. Right, so you need marketing. And for your clients, you shared with me some proprietary work where you've done mm -hmm. showing the cost mm -hmm. of a poor hire. Right. And that's something you bring to the table for your clients too. Yeah. Well, especially with, with, I mean, we can do it regardless of the position, but it's, it's really impactful when you look at a sales hire that either is a, you know, quote, bad hire or somebody who is one of your best performers that bails on you. So, you know, you have to look at what are the costs around that? So let's say one of your best performers leaves and it takes you three months to fill that job and that performer is performing at 170% of quota. Now we have to look at, okay, so he's gone for three months. What were the opportunity costs that you just lost? Oh, yeah, I mean, they may not be hard costs. Well, we're not paying anything. Yeah, but you're, you may be losing yeah, the, what if three it's, quarters of a million dollars or a oh, million yeah. dollars in sales. If it's Pareto's rule, and that's, right. let's say they're 80% and some large component of 80% right. at 170%, mm -hmm. you know, you're looking at 12 to 13% potential drop in a quarter. Right. And in particular, if that salesperson goes to your competitor. Right, well, right. And so it takes three months, let's say, to get somebody hired. And then how long does it take that person to ramp up? Depending on the complexity of the sale, I mean, I've known 
places where it's taken six to nine months to ramp up. So a company has to pay non-recoverable draw throughout all of that. So the salesperson can pay their bills till they start actually earning their own commissions. You know, and, and I think on the other side, so you're, you're an organization that has one, maybe one key salesperson mm -hmm. or two. Mm -hmm. And you go, can we take and clone those guys within our organization? Mm -hmm. And the answer is if they could, they probably would have already. Comment on, on going out and perhaps hiring two more similar qualified salespeople mm -hmm. and the impact on the organization. Mm -hmm. Well, and that, of course, all comes into sitting down, determining what you really look for. So um, it's imperative to determine, like I said, people want to look at clone the, the top guy. Let's look at what we love about this person and duplicate him. But let's ask anybody who knows anything about sales, which probably all your listeners do because they're all trying to, they're all trying to sell something. Do you learn more from your successes or your failures? Failures are more expensive. That's tuition. Right. So yes, we look at what makes someone successful in any position, but we also really need to drill down on what doesn't work. What didn't work about this person? And you know, it, it lies in there that we then figure out how to clone how to clone that person. And part of that, and let's say you've got the two people as you pointed out. So I would I would sit down with those two people individually and interview them and learn about them just like I would if I were pulling them out of a company, potentially, interviewing them and getting to understand them. Because there have been studies that indicate that a hire will fail within the first about 18 months due to nothing having to do with skills and abilities. So the cultural, the cultural piece. Okay, that's the pregnant question in the room. What is that? Right, that's the and cultural piece. The it, fit of personalities and how someone works. Nothing to do with skills and abilities. You know, and I think and that's it, really costly. And I think about that in an organization. So you've got this list of candidates. You've detailed the HR person to find mm -hmm. a replacement. And they're so buried in the company and they're so close emotionally, mm -hmm. very hard to step out of that emotional mm -hmm. and make a hard decision. Yeah. You know, Bob, I spoke to someone actually just yesterday who told me that one of the tenured, very experienced professors at their university was leaving and they were, everyone is thrilled because she has done nothing but really everyone in the department hates her. And you know, this is the problem, of course, the difference between business and education. Once you're tenured, you can't fire someone. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's a huge problem. And they pollute the pool. Right, I mean, everybody's thrilled that the person is leaving. They just you know, can't let, even believe it. Let's think of a, a, a circumstance. Let's say that you're, you're not in the C-suite, but you're you're the board of directors, mm -hmm. and you wake up and either your leadership gets run over by a bus or decides to leave. Mm -hmm. And so you're sitting there and you go, we are CEO-less. Mm -hmm. um, what would be their process in reaching out to you and trying to solve that problem? Well, it's important to, of course, like always, figure out why did this superstar leave, regardless of whether it's a CEO mm -hmm. or somebody or a salesman carrying a bag, the quota. So that's where the advising and coaching comes in. And, and really, all I spend time doing is asking questions. 
to determine and give me information. So it's, it's first you have to look at who's on the board. Mm -hmm. This is a public or a private company. If it's a private company, you can be sure there's some venture capitalists sitting on the board. And you know, venture capitalists who you know, maybe only be getting a big return on one out of 10 of their portfolio investments. Mm -hmm. And you know, is the venture capitalist, what's the venture capitalist's ultimate exit strategy? Is it to sell or is it to do an IPO? And it depends. It depends on the company, what they're selling, uh, if they're a leader in the market, if they're not a leader in the market. Um, you know, typically if you're a leader in the market, if you're like the leader in the market, you're usually headed to an IPO. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, look at Whole Foods and Amazon, right? That acquisition came out of nowhere for all the rest of us. Wow, interesting acquisition for them. So the venture capitalists have, you know, they want to return on their X millions dollar of investment, especially whoever's leading those. Sometimes they have somebody in Series A, they'll be in Series B, they may be in Series C. And so that'll affect their behavior. You know, and, and, it absolutely and, will yeah. affect their behavior. So when we talked about emotional attachment, mm -hmm. how emotionally attached are they to the outcome of having this company acquired for X numbers of hundreds of millions or billions or whatever. You know, that was kind of covering the unanticipated departure of a key person. Mm -hmm. Let's say that you're the CEO of a company and you either know your top, one of your top people are going to retire mm -hmm. or one of your top salespeople are going to retire. Mm -hmm. What typically, for planning purposes, should be their time frame to start getting busy? As long as possible, right? That's not always the case. But if you're looking at a CEO mm -hmm. or any other high-level executive, it sure better be in their contract when you hire them that they need to give X amount of notice for them to get any of their, any of their money on the back end. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's smart business. Why would you, you know, CEO could turn around and go, yeah, I'm out the door. They get the golden parachute. They get everything. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I mean it, the company doesn't have all the power to do that because you've got a candidate. You want the candidate. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, there has to be some compromise. But that's really important. Now, at a level of sales, you're not going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. You can do that with executives because the packages are considerably higher. So what do you think the minimum amount of time that you have? If there's such a thing, three, six months minimum? For what? If you're going to take and have a, a CEO, a key person in a company. Oh, I, you should be planning for it for a year. Year, okay. I could easily take that long to find someone. Yeah. Yeah, what, what I was trying to do is paint the picture. So if, if somebody's out there thinking about what mm -hmm. they need to do mm -hmm. and, and head down that road, yeah. you know, how should they start framing it in their mind if they didn't already have it in mind? I mean, bravo if it doesn't take 12 months. But, I mean, a CEO of a large company, that is not a search that will happen overnight. Because of all the things we talked about, about this client where, you know, I was out there at Christmas time and the person just started six months later. Thinking through your career, mm -hmm. what do you think is the single smartest thing you saw a CEO do in a hiring process? Spend time with the candidate in actual work, on a work day. Like, have them come in and spend a whole day with you. I mean, I think that's brilliant. Have them work alongside of you. Sounds simplistic. Well, I mean, but you know, some, you know, I mean, you know, we can all follow the the kiss principle, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think simple is bad. Th things, no, I, I get it. Things don't have to be complex. Things 
often turn out to be complex and complicated. But, you know, if, if uh, things can be easy, well, yay. <laughs> you know, Unfortunately, they're not usually like that, but when you yeah. can, it's, it's a huge plus. For the folks that are listening that think about whether it's me calling an you know, executive mm-hmm. recruiting or recruiting, mm-hmm. what do you think the one or two biggest misconceptions about your industry are? That you know, companies think there's no ROI. Why should I spend all this money? We touched on that earlier. So let me go back to that story I was going to tell you. That mm-hmm. This is a great, a great way to give you an exact example of this. So I met with a founder this week in Denver here. And uh, he he's in a B2C business. I don't want to mention the actual business he's in, but he's in a B2C business. And it's a business that everyone knows about. It's a business that people have been down the road, you know, using that type of product and so on and so forth. And he and I got together to talk about the potential of me being advisor for his company because there are similarities to how he sells to the way I used to sell when I was, cause I got my start in contingent search and then woke up and realized, what am I doing? I have, I'm, you know, I need to be a counselor and an, an advocate and an advisor of companies. You can't be that way if somebody is not employing you to do so. And uh, he said to me, he's looking for a CTO, mm-hmm. and he's been given the same candidate by four different recruiters. Yikes. Yikes is right. And I said to him, so wait a second, you're telling me that you're using contingent recruiters to hire an important hire like this? I didn't make the distinction between, you know, like I said, if it's an important hire, you need to be committed, have a committed partnership with somebody. But this is a startup hiring a CXO position, right? One of your mm-hmm. C positions. What are you thinking? Well, he's thinking, I don't have to pay for it. Unless and until somebody finds it. And I said to him, so why do you think four recruiters came up with the same person? There's only, there's only two reasons that could be. One is the candidate is desperate for a job. And he said, no, he's not. He told me where he was, where he was actually working for. And, they're de- and they don't care who gets them in there. He said, no, that's not the case. Or two, which is really the most likely case, is all those recruiters, maybe one of them, but all the other ones, have now presented a candidate without ever approaching the candidate with the opportunity and then getting their approval to present them. That goes on. That has been going on since I started in the business in the early 90s. It's horrible. I'd hate to be that candidate and have my CEO come in and say, I see where you're out looking for a job. Yeah, well, I actually had a uh, a VP of HR um, recently, within the past few months, tell me that she was doing a confidential replacement of someone in her organization Actually, the person she was replacing came to her with the job description she'd pulled off the internet and said to her, you're replacing me? And the VP of HR was telling me the story. I was mortified, as I'm sure she was as well. And I said, and I hate to be so jaded. I said, so it was a contingent firm, right? She said, yep. And I said, you know what? 
you should. She says, you know, Carol, I have been working with this firm for years. They have never done anything like that before. The owner of the firm was mortified and, you know, couldn't believe that the person had posted the job. I said, well, can I assert something? And again, I, I, we don't, none of us really know the truth, but I've been doing this for a few years and I like to think I know where people make mistakes. What more than likely happened, and this is what I said to her, is I said, oh, they've been running their business like this all the time. They've never been caught. You just caught them. Now, I can't guarantee that because we, none of us really knows, yeah. but that is, that is a probably high probability if that well, was you know, the you're trying to give a range of how come. You know, in, in thinking about the folks that are listening, and they go, you know, maybe I, I'm a candidate for your services. Um, how do they frame whether they're big enough or the, the position they're looking for is something that yeah. you can help them with? It's a great question because although my, my heart really lies with startups, startups can't usually afford to hire me or any retained recruiter for that matter. And it, they, they can't always even afford to hire a contingent recruiter because they have just a little bit of money. So, you know, most companies are started. So in any event, um, they have to look at a number of things. And I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody. I'm not going to cost them a dime. And because I have to discover something's a fit for me, I also need to discover if I'm a fit for them. So, you know, I'm not one to blow sunshine up anyone's skirt. When they hire me, they get my honest opinion on things. So it is important to really look at, well, you know, what are your needs? Is this something you even want or need my help with? And then we can talk about what's it going to cost and is, that, is the value there for them? How long is it going to take you to find this person yourself? You know, as I pointed out earlier, three months, nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about it as we're, we're kind of coming to the close mm-hmm. here. If, if you were to offer a piece of parting advice to the folks that are out there in the world of mm-hmm. having to find yeah. key personnel, yeah. what's that one, one or two key takeaways that you would offer for them? Don't have a preconceived notion about recruiters. Don't think because this is, let's say, a software engineer or a salesperson, that's another great example, that you don't need to retain somebody for that. If it, the job is important, enough, you may need to retain somebody to do that job. The other thing, and have a conversation with them. You know, any salesperson is going to give you the time for free, and I'm going to do the same thing. Because it's important for me to educate someone, right? And the other thing is, how do you know what firm to hire? Those are, I think, the two most important things. You know, you've decided now on, you know, doing a retained search. And gosh, how do I don't know anybody? How do I find someone? Well, I would say it would be smart to hire someone like me as an advisor because I know how to find a search firm. I know the questions to ask. To like any candidate, narrow down the list for you. If it's a search I can't do, some things are just, you know, not every recruiter can do everything, right? Say I'm a generalist, but you know, somebody in a field that I know nothing about, literally nothing would probably not be a great fit for me. There may be other firms that at least know that industry. 
So the biggest mistake, my takeaway, is that if they just didn't reach out and at least have a conversation mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. Conversation doesn't cost anything. Then you can determine where you want to go from there. Well, you've been really generous with your time. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been great talking with you. Super. Thanks.